Hello and welcome to the Sacred City Life Podcast. This is your host, Pastor Justin Dean. And today I have the joy and pleasure to bring you another Theology for Everyone segment of this podcast. And I'm here with my residents. And we are slowly working our way and we're enjoying ourselves. We've got a cigar and some good drink and we're enjoying ourselves on enjoying some good gifts of God as we work our way through the Westminster Confession of Faith. And we hope that this has been beneficial to you. We hope you're enjoying it. Maybe you're learning a thing or two. We're trying to keep these podcasts a little shorter than my uh, normal podcasts. And, um, but we hope that you find them uh, beneficial. And now we're continuing. Man, we are still in the first chapter of the Westminster Confession on the Holy Scripture that it's important for us to have a good understanding of what Scripture is um, so we don't treat it uh, as something less than it is, right? And it's, uh, it's necessary for our salvation, and it's sufficient for our salvation, and it's divinely inspired, and it's beautiful, and it's, um, yeah, it's a special revelation of God. And this week, um, we're going to get into a few things. We're going to try to finish, if we can, I don't know if we can, we're going to try to finish the first chapter of the Westminster Confession. That means we got to go Article 7, 8, and 9, if we can make that happen. And so <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and just jump right into it today, and I'm going to read Article 7, and it says this, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Why don't we read uh, 2 Peter 3.16 and see what Peter says here. Sure. Uh, I'll start in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Oh, man. Okay. So we see the Westminster Divines here are dividing Scripture in one sense, and we are commanded to rightly divide the Scripture into what they're, they're putting two big buckets before us. One bucket, we can say, is things that are clear, things that are easy to understand. But he's saying there, there's another bucket and that bucket we call the book of Revelation. No, there's, there's more than just that. But there's another bucket that says it's not alike, plain in themselves. It's not clear unto all. But the bucket that is clear is everything that's necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and open in some place of Scripture that not only the learned but the unlearned and a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto sufficient understanding of this. <clears throat> this is a really helpful tool for us in reading the Scripture. They're saying, listen, there are things in Scripture. First off, 
the main thrust of Scripture is to teach us who God is, what God has done, God's mission. He wants to be known. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be loved. And we are sinners and we're broken and we're, put, we're away from God and we're barred from the, from the Garden of Eden and we cannot get back into our relationship with God unless God does something to save us. Mm. But Scripture reveals very clearly what was that message of salvation, Bryson? The gospel? Expound on that, son. Oh, that, uh, well, it's got God's mission. Christ came, or God sent Christ to come and take the place of sinners uh, to restore a relationship or redeem them, to reconcile all the R words. Uh, what are those R words? What, what are those R words? Redeem, reconcile, renew, restore. That's good. What is that taller bottle of bourbon over there? Bellmead. Oh my goodness, it's so much better than that old elk. It's not even funny. I just got my first sip of that and it's absolutely delicious. It's so good. The old elk is a weeded, a weeded bourbon. So that's it. He's saying there are some things that are really clear, and that's this. We need salvation. We can't earn salvation. So what did God do? He sent his own son to earn salvation for us. And I love this. First off, I believe everyone's a theologian. Everyone's a theologian. Scripture, the, the clear sense of Scripture, the main thrust of Scripture, the gospel itself, that here's what God says, we failed it, Jesus succeeded, Jesus gives us his righteousness. That's simple. That's clear. You don't have to have a PhD to know that. You don't. The Bible isn't meant for seminary. The Bible isn't meant for just for pastors. Those Bible's meant for everyday people. And that's why we teach our children the Bible. And we teach our children the gospel. We teach our children the easy text to understand. So we want everyone to be a theologian. We want everyone to read their Bible. We believe you might not have graduated from high school. I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but my grandpa dropped out of school at like eighth grade seventh or eighth grade and just had to work he had to work to provide for the family to help his family but my grandpa can read the bible and he can come to understand clearly how to be saved right mm. there's no other way but through jesus christ you can be completely unlearned and you can read the bible and if the spirit draws you to the father and the spirit illuminates you one of the things they say about Peter in the book of Acts, Peter preaches his gospel. And he's like, These are unlearned men. These are unlearned men. Clearly, they've been with Jesus. That's what they said about him. Because Jesus opened their eyes, the Spirit opened their eyes, and they could understand the Scriptures. So, you read through Scripture, there is a very clear sense of how to be saved. Right? But Paul... And Peter show us another bucket of Scripture. And that's the bucket that is not clear. That is, Peter says, some of Paul's writings, mm, those are hard to understand. <laughs> and we, we have those Scriptures that we read and we're like, what the heck is this? The one we talked about in the last podcast. Which was that? What was First that? First Corinthians 12, I think is what it is. Mm. 
Oh, the head coverings? Yeah. Yeah. Long hair and head coverings. I'm looking at Bryson right here who I'm has long... both of those. <laughs> <laughs> who has a hat on and he has, you know, a homeless beard right now and, <laughs> and hair that could questionably be considered long. And so is my brother just not following the word of God right here? Jesus clearly loves his sheep, really shaved, real tight, tight high and tight, right? Well, we, we talked about that scripture last week, how Paul was making an argument from culture and not from scripture. And there's some things that are open-handed like that. And so they're hard to understand. But when he talks about sexuality, when he talks about gender, he doesn't make an argument from culture. He makes an argument. So, so there's some that say gender is a cultural construct. Christians say absolutely not. In the beginning, God made them male and female. He created them. In his own image, he created them. Paul makes arguments that say husband and a wife that's what marriage is. It's not between two men. It's not between two women. And he argues from creation. He argues from divine revelation. But then when he talks about head coverings and long hair and all these different weird things, he makes an argument from culture. He's just like, hey, guys, this is what we do. It's normal. This is normal in our society. Just go with it, right? Um, and so we can make those same th- same arguments. But it's helpful for us to just acknowledge that the Bible itself says there's some parts of it that are hard to understand. You think that's why so many people like question the Bible of uh, well, one, one minute it says this and the next minute it says this. Like, How do you know what's true and what's not true? Because, you know, in this culture they do these things and this culture they do these things. And a lot of times it could be, you know, a little difficult for people to understand or yeah, what's true. That's definitely one of the reasons. Like if you're talking about Islam, Islam tells you, everything in detail exactly how you have to be. Mm. There are no gray areas. There are no... Um, Islam doesn't see the value in cultural, in cultural creations, in, in culture itself. It only says, this is the right culture. Right. That's why they all dress the same way, basically, that they dressed or 1,500 years ago, mm. Right. They've, they've stopped, and that's not what the gospel teaches. That's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that we're meant to invent things. We're meant to create good culture. We're meant to evolve in our musical tastes and our government and, our, and, and all the things that we made in technology itself. We're not Luddites who believe all technology is bad, right? We're, we're different than an autocratic system, which is what Islam ultimately is. So Christianity is a lot more... A lot different. So there's some things. Um, I heard a debate this last week between an atheist and uh, a Christian, <clears throat> and the atheist said, "How could you believe the Bible? Because it talks about eating shellfish is is bad and will make you impure and blah 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 blah." And in the Old Testament, there were certain things that made you impure and you weren't supposed to do them. But then in the New Testament, those restrictions have been removed because Christ has made us pure. But the debater, the Christian debater in winsome and, and uh, Christian wisdom said, yeah, 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 we can all laugh that the Bible does. At one certain time, the Bible did command us not to eat shellfish. But we can all just laugh at your w- worldview right now that believes that we actually came from shellfish. <laughs> <laughs> and the crowd laughed. And the atheist got, like, d- bothered because he had never been laughed at before because of his, the, his uh, philosophy of evolution. Mm. You know, it's like, 
and you could think about that. It was kind of fun. It was really funny because it's like, oh, your God commanded us not to eat shellfish. What a archaic God. And then he's like, uh, you think we actually were shellfish? <laughs> you know, that's pretty funny too. That's pretty funny. And, and, and I, I got a good chuckle. I got a good chuckle out of that. But there are things in scripture that are hard to understand. And I already made reference to it. Um, certain chapters in Daniel, certain chapters in Ezekiel, <laughs> what we call apocalyptic. It's a category of scripture. The book of Revelation. The, the Westminster Confession has already told us everything we need for salvation and life and godliness is clear to us. It's divinely re- revealed to us. And, but it doesn't mean it's easy. everything's easy to understand. Mm. How to be saved, that's simple. Sexual morality, that's simple. Most of the stuff, I would even argue 90% of the things in the Bible are very clear. Mm. But there's 10% that are difficult to understand. And the book of Revelation is one of them, mm. right? Who is the beast? What is the mark of the beast? Is there such a thing as a rapture? You know, is there... You know, is Jesus going to rapture his church and then come back? Or is Jesus going to come back and then rapture his church? What is all the crazy stuff in it? Hey, listen, if you have questions in the book of Revelation, we have preached verse by verse through the book of Revelation a couple of years ago. You can go back and listen to that. And um, But there's, a, there's no Christian consensus on the book of Revelation. We all believe it's going to happen, how it says it's going to happen, but we don't know is what it's going to look like specifically, right? Mm. How to specifically to interpret the book of Revelation, but we do our, we do our best at it. So is, is there any danger in getting caught up in the unclear? Yes. It's a great question, Bryson. There is a huge danger to major I don't even want to say the minors because obviously all of scripture is divinely inspired and given to us for the purpose of growing in godliness. But, and this is actually where, let me just go, let me go to the next, I'm going to go to the next article Mm -hmm. in the confession because the article kind of answers that question for us. That's a great question. And the Westminster Confession answers Um, that question in the next article. And it says this. Oh, no, it doesn't. I'm sorry. It's two more ahead of us. It's two more ahead of us. Um, And I'm going to go ahead there. I'm going to go there right now. You guys all right with that? Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to go there. This is article nine. It says this. The infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself and therefore When there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So the principle here is scripture is meant to interpret scripture. And so anytime you come into a place that's unclear in scripture, we should allow the clear places of scripture to interpret for us the unclear Mm. places of Scripture. So, let me give you one example. John 3.16, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, whoever should believe in him shall not perish, right, but have everlasting life. From that one scripture, you could say, okay, all you need to do, okay, I guess everybody is on the equal playing field. All you got to do is believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, you go to you get eternal life. You go to heaven when you die, right? But from the last podcast, if you remember, later on in John, Jesus says, who comes to the Father? Those who draw him. Those who are drawn by the Father. Absolutely. So can anyone believe in Jesus? Not by themselves. Not by themselves. So John 3.16, we, we have to allow other scriptures to help us understand that scripture. Even though Tim Tebow put it on his face, right, and, uh, and uh, played, played you know, college football for Florida, John 3.16, it's so easy to understand, just believe in Jesus. Well, actually, it's not that simple. Other scriptures need to help us interpret that scripture correctly, which John shows us later on. Who can believe in Jesus? Only those who the Father has drawn. We, we keep What does that mean? Only those who have been given the Spirit. Only those whose Spirit has opened their eyes. So I've been in, I, I'm part of Acts 29, and we assess church planters, and one of the questions we ask people is just like, what comes first? Faith or repentance. And what we're getting at there is, do we believe that God saves or do we believe that people save themselves? Do people just choose to believe in God and choose to repent of their sins and choose to put their faith in God? Or does God actually send the Holy Spirit to convict them, to illuminate their mind, to open up their eyes so that they can repent of their sin. Mm. And we're reformed. We believe we're not just reformed like in a traditional sense. We believe this is exactly what Scripture teaches. This is the outworking of John. That nobody can repent unless the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. Right? And so we allow Scripture to help us interpret Scripture. So we allow places where God reveals Himself really clear to enlighten us to understand places where he's mm. he's not so clear. So is there even... I mean, I, there, are, there are things that are even more clear, like in regards to like sexual immorality and things like that. But even when, like, I don't know, with John 3.16, like growing up that is always preached as an incredibly clear verse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it is... It is clear, clear, yeah. But what comes before it? That's right. all. Yeah, yeah. So there's always, even with things that seem clear, a necessity to interpret that with other scripture as well. Yeah, taking scripture as a whole for sure. But let's get on your idea of sexuality. We'll just step on the landmine right here. The issue. So what we talked about last week, the cultural issues of head coverings, and such, and long hair. Mm. What liberal believers or liberal theologians would have us believe is that the idea of gender and sexuality is in that same realm, Mm. even though the Scripture never speaks of gender or sexuality in that realm. It speaks of cultural issues like covering your head and praying in public and things like that in those realms. But when it talks of sexuality... It never condones 
immorality. It never condones polygamy. It never condones sex outside of marriage. It never condones homosexuality. Every time the the, the scriptures speak of homosexuality, it condemns it in outright, clear, blatant terms. It's a sin. Now, it's a normal sin. I'm not saying it's not abnormal, right? It's normal in the sense, but it's a sin. It's an aberration of the way God's created us. Now, people are, some people say, well, I was made this way. Yeah, maybe. We were all made sinners. We're all broken Hmm. in that way. We all sin. Hey, listen, I could say I was made an adulterer, right? Like I would prefer to look at pornography and, and sin against my wife. Like there's things in my, like I'm prone to the, I'm prone to that. Like that's my sexuality is broken in those ways, but Jesus is redeeming it. And I have to confess my sins and repent and become a one woman man for the rest of my life. And we would say the same thing for those who have a homosexual uh, propensity, right? Like it's just part of being broken, living in a sinful world and being broken. But scripture is clear. Homosexuality is a sin. It's always, con- it's always condemned. It's never condoned in scripture. And so, liberal theologians try to build some kind of weird, you know, theology that, like, it's like, oh, no, it's this middle ground. It's not. It's not. We let, when Scripture speaks clear, we let it speak. We let it stand, right? We let it interpret other places that that aren't as clear. Yeah. Now, what's the comfort? Um, I'm thinking section 7 talks about even the unlearned can yeah. understand and section nine talks about um the the clarity of scripture interpreting scripture so there's i would say a a comfort to that wouldn't you say there's a huge comfort in that first off no normal person is or unlearned person average person is going to read the bible and think oh yeah uh, it's okay to determine your gender or oh yeah it's okay to have sex outside of marriage or, oh yeah it's okay to have sex with somebody of your own gender no unlearned person is going to create that doctrine. Who creates that doctrine? People that are educated beyond their level of obedience. That's mm. who's going to create those doctrines. Scholars who, who have a desire to, a sinful desire um, to create false doctrines. Mm. Like they have an, a, a, an alternate desire. I want to have sex with whoever I want to have sex with, or I, it's culturally normative. It's culturally cool now to accept homosexuality and all the gender confusion. And so I'm going to somehow search scripture to find some kind of a loophole to create these mm. alternate options. Mm-hmm. That's who, that's who creates this stuff. Nobody reads the Bible when Paul specifically condemns homosexuals and homosexuality Nobody's going to create a doctrine that says, oh, yeah, no, no, it's fine. The Bible Mm. teaches fine. What? Anybody that reads the Bible is going to see, no, it's not. It's never been good. It's not good. It's contrary to nature. Mm. Now, is it, it's no worse than having sex before you're married. I'm not saying that. Like, the Bible condemns that, too. I always remind people, like, like, whoa, you're being so judgmental and hard. No. It's, sexual morality is just a, really a blanket term any sex that's not with your wife or husband, right? Period. Pornea is the, is the Greek term, which just means like pornography, right? So, yeah, I think, um, so I think the comfort is like you can read scripture and you're going to get it. You're going to understand it. It's not 
it's not fuzzy. And, and like I said, 90, maybe even more than 90%, 95% of areas, it's not fuzzy. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to understand. Yeah. I feel like there's even like a third like aspect there with like condoning, condemning. And I feel like there's parts where like the Bible is just commenting on something. Where like, because I know people will go back and like, oh, well, Solomon was like, he was sleeping around with all of these chicks. Yeah, and he like, absolutely was. The Bible's not condoning that. Never does once. Yeah. So you have polygamy in the Old Testament. People are all, often, and I think this is where our culture is headed. Our culture is on the the move towards polygamy. We've we've condoned homosexuality. We've we're, we're, we're marrying homosexuals now. We're on the move to condone polygamy and probably some probably you know. There's a lot of people out there that are wanting to lower the the, the, the age of statutory consent or whatever you want to say to have, be able to have sex with children. I mean, it's chaos where we're headed. Mm. But the Bible never condones polygamy. In But the Bible is, a re, is real. And so what do men do? Men want to have more sex, more women than they, you know, more, more than one wife, right? Mm. And they do. And then, this is what we have to ask ourselves. Okay, and how does that go for them? <laughs> Mm. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. The reason there's Islam right now, the reason there's Islam is because Abraham had more than one wife. <laughs> right? That's what yeah. that's where that that's what that's where that originated from. Right? Mm-hmm. How did it go for David? Did it go well for David? David's kingdom was literally torn apart because of his polygamy. Right? Psalm 51, we know he took another man's wife, he did horrible things. His son, his son was killed because of it. I mean, it was, it's horrible. Every time the scripture shows us polygamy, it condemns it. And then Jesus arrives on the scene and Jesus says, marriage is meant to, between, meant to be between one husband and one wife, mm. man and woman. And he makes his argument from the book of Genesis. So is polygamy in the Bible? Yeah. So is homosexuality. So is bestiality. So is all kind of crazy stuff. But it's never put in a good light. It's condemned. It's either outright condemned or it's shown by its practice that it's not helpful, it's hurtful, and it's not the original creation. Obviously, in the beginning, Genesis 1, when he creates man and woman, he creates one. Right? So we can learn from that. So this principle, really easy, really simple. Scripture, clear scripture, is meant to interpret unclear scripture. There are some things that are harder to understand. Some things you got to study in the original context. You need theologians, you need scholars, you need a good commentary set to understand. And so I would, this is why we all need a study Bible. Mm. And I would say that get an ESV study Bible because the things that you read, and I'll, guys, I am seminary level trained. You know, I've got my MDiv, my master's. And I, I need scholars. I still need scholars. Um, I have shelves full of, of scholars because they're smarter than me. They're PhD level. They're way beyond me. And so when I, when I encounter a scripture that I'm like, what does that mean? I don't understand that. I go to other scholars and I read them and I study it 
and then they, they might point back to other scriptures. I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. So, so don't. On, so on the ESV, like, doesn't work for you, and you're still trying to pull more out. What are some of those commentaries that you go to? Like some of the names of the people that you kind of always go to. So this that's a good question, Alex. And for those of us who have never been to seminary and we don't understand the way commentaries work. And I was even raised in a tradition that believed somehow like smart people were bad. Like mm. my pastor used to call uh, seminary, cemetery. <laughs> the place you go where your faith dies, you know? And there are some seminaries that are like that. They're, that are teaching ungodly, liberal ways of interpreting scripture that, are, that literally kills people's faith. But um, the seminaries that I went to are not like that. And so it's hard to find a good commentary. And there's probably just as many, if not more, bad commentaries out there as there are good commentaries. So um, I would say for our people at Sacred City, if you're wanting to go deeper, because there are no, you can't just say one name right. and you go find, because it takes so much work to write a commentary that very few people can write a commentary on the whole Bible. So you have a commentary who writes a book, or you have a, a scholar who writes a commentary in the book of Matthew, different one on Mark, different one on, you know, Luke, Galatians, Ephesians. And so you can find um, commentary sets, like the Reformed Expository Commentary. I have that whole commentary right down there. That's It's a trustworthy, good set. But here's the deal. That set is probably going to set you back a thousand bucks. Like that's how much that set commentary. I'm looking at a set. It's probably all of those books are probably going to be a thousand bucks. So what I would recommend you do is if you're feeling led by the spirit to study a certain book of the Bible, email me, email your pastor and say, Hey, what's the best commentaries on this specific book of the Bible? As we work our way through books of the Bible, I choose four or five commentaries. Um, that I've, I know they're conservative, I know they're reformed, and I know they're the cutting edge of, of scholarly um, wisdom of the day. And so I'm right now, uh, I'm looking over at the gospel, I'm looking over right now at our stack of um, commentaries on the Gospel of Matthew, and I've got what's called the NICOT, the, the New International Commentary on the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. Can you see who the author of that is, Bryson? Off the top of your head? I forget right off the top of my head. The white one? Yeah, no, the bottom one, the very bottom one. Oh, it's uh, Scott McKnight, right? Scott McKnight, is that who that one is? I think and so. then and then I've got the gospel according to Matthew, and that is the PNTC. No, that's Scott McKnight. The very bottom one, I can't tell what that one is. And so we've got I've got I read basically four or five commentaries each book that we read and they're very they're very extensive but if you email me I can say hey man here's the best commentary for where you're at in your life this is what you should read it might be more technical it might be more easier to read whatever so I've got D.A. Carson I've got Martin Lloyd-Jones I've got Pennington I've got different commentaries up there and so that helps us understand so one of the things I have is the Logos Bible software which I've got Literally about $20,000 of resources. And like, like if you're going to buy all these resources that I have in my Logos software, 
it's $20,000 worth of commentaries in there. And I've got highlighted the best ones. And then so when I'm studying it, it helps me be really efficient. So if you're wanting to study the book of the Bible, you should have a commentary. Step one, ESV study Bible. It's got good scholars, minimal commentary at the bottom, but then you can go on from there. So Would you even like put in something like um, desiring God's look at the book kind of stuff? Or would that well, be? Well, look at the book is more of a way you're seeing inside the brain of John Piper and how he exegetes the truth of Scripture. And it's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's helpful. Um, I would definitely recommend anybody. But he, de- he hasn't been through every all, all the Scriptures and mm-hmm. all the books. So you can go to the look at the book at DesiringGod.com, I think, or whatever, and you can type in your text, and maybe he's worked on it. Maybe he hasn't. So... It's not a one-stop shop. It's not going to always give you the right answer, but it's really beneficial to help you learn how to interpret the scriptures. So, lesson number one on interpreting the scriptures. We let the clear scriptures help us understand the unclear scriptures. All right? Mm. Article 8. I'm going to let you read that one. Sure. Article 8. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as, in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But, because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, who have right unto and interest in the scriptures, and are commanded in fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God, dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Okay. So, how do I say that in basic language? We be- So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. We believe that the Old Testament in Hebrew is divinely inspired, without error, given to us from God by the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. Hmm. What's the problem? What what, pro- what what problem do we have with that? Don't no. speak that. <laughs> That's right. You probably don't speak Hebrew and you probably don't speak Greek, right? And there's a couple pieces in there that are in Aramaic, but Aramaic was also considered a dialect of Hebrew. So, um, so the problem is, so some people say, I don't read commentaries. I only read the Bible. And they're, 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 what they're trying to say is, I just trust the Bible. I don't need nobody to help me interpret it. Well, who's interpreting it from Hebrew and Greek? Because unless you're reading the original, and here it is, the autographs, the first time it was written down in Hebrew and in Greek, then you're relying on the work of scholars. Because scholars have kept the original texts, 
Scholars have copied the original text. Scholars have then... So, why is this in the Westminster Confession of Faith? Because in the Catholic Church, nobody could read the Bible in their own language. Only the priests could read it, most of the time in Latin. Only the priests could read it. it. The Bible itself was literally chained to the pulpit. One Bible per church chained to, chained to, the, chained to the pulpit. Martin Luther said, nope. Wycliffe said, nope. Wycliffe died because of this. Translating the scriptures into English language, he was burned at the stake. Luther said, nope, we need to translate this into the common vulgar language. That means the common vernacular, the one that everyday blacksmiths and, you know, uh, whatever you call a guy that makes shoes, I forget, cobblers and things like that. We should translate the, the scriptures into the common language so the everyday person can understand it. And so, and, and Rome freaked out. Rome didn't think people were smart enough to understand the scriptures. And, and so this is one of the huge differences and one of the huge debts we owe to the Reformation is that, no, we can read the Bible in our own language. But we're standing on the shoulders to the scholars and the men who went before us who interpreted the scriptures for us. And so anytime somebody says, oh, the King James Version is the only right version or, or this version is the only right version, I'm like, give me a break. Actually, the, if you want to stand on that, the only right version is the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures. That's it. Everything since then has been an interpretation or a translation from the original languages. And, and so we can trust that, though, because we have scholars today that can still read the Hebrew language. We have scholars today that can still read the Greek language, and they can translate, us, translate them for us today in our common vernacular so that the everyday common man can read the scriptures and know them. And so we're all standing on the shoulders of the giants who went before us. So we've, we've already talked about the ESV. Are there any other translations recommended? And then are there any other translations that we should probably, it, it would be maybe wise to steer away from? Whew. That's a big question. Um, I think the ESV, I think we should also have an ESV. I think it's some of the mod most modern scholarship that deals with the... So we're always finding... We talked about this in the canon of Scripture. We're mm -hmm. still finding earlier manuscripts that can get us back to those original autographs. Now, just so everybody knows, there aren't big differences. They're very small... Um, word differences or very small, like like 1%, less than 1%, punctuation differences, things like that, um, that we're talking about. As a scribe trans, transcribed the original, he mis, misaligned one word or one thing or something like that, mm -hmm. or one line or whatever. So there's very small differences. But yeah, as we find um, older and older and older copies we can get closer and closer and closer to the original autographs, the original, the first time this letter was written, the first time this thing was written down. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think the ESV is so much better than the King James Version, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but then there's things like, 
the only other version I would really recommend is the CSB, which is good. But then if you're like, if you just want to read, if you're devotionally reading, I have no problem with reading the message. Or even the New Living Translation, which is a thought-for-thought translation rather than a word-for-word translation. Or some people like to read, um, uh, what's the translation that's got like, what's, uh, the amplified version. It's like defining words. It's hard to read, but some people really love it because it'll have a weird word and then it'll define the word in the midst of it. And that, that's helpful. But if you're studying scripture, I think a word-for-word translation is the best, and that's going to be the ESV or the CSB. Mm-hmm. Those are the best two translations. cool all right let's go on to the last section section 10 in chapter 1 the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils opinions of ancient writers and current writers doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. So, again, we're coming back to a baseline understanding of the Scripture that pastors can't tell us specifically what Scriptures mean, councils can't, churches can't, traditions can't, ancient writers can't, um, no systematic theology can. The ultimate arbiter of truth is no other than the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. Mm. So, I talked about, a few times ago, we talked about the understanding of social justice and how Christians should respond to the social justice. We talked about John MacArthur and Tim Keller having opposing views. And I said, one of them is wrong because they're opposing views. So, one of them is absolutely wrong. Now, they could be both, they actually both could be wrong, but the arbiter of that truth is Scripture itself and the Holy Spirit. The mm-hmm. Holy Spirit's going to convict us of the, of the truth of Scripture. Um, we can't just rely on, oh, well, John Calvin said, oh, well, Luther said, oh, well, John Wesley said, oh, well, John MacArthur said, oh, well, Tim Keller said. We have to go back. Does that correspond to the Scripture? Mm-hmm. And is the Holy Spirit convincing us that that's the truth? <coughs> Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the number one thing that people will do right now is they look for the the pastor that agrees with them, and then they will share that all over Facebook, um, almost almost making it seem like they believe the words of MacArthur or the words of Keller are divinely inspired in the moment and have really little regard for what scripture says about something as long as it or if it contradicts what they want it to say yeah i think you're right the that that has been called confirmation bias mm-hmm. we think something is true from our gut and then we look for the experts out there who will back us up we feel like something's not right we look for the, th- the scholars and the theologians who will back us up. Hmm. Paul said in the end times, people will have itching ears and they'll look for teachers that will just confirm 
what they already know, to, what they already want to hear, mm-hmm. right? And so that's a re- that's a reality in the world, and it's a very frustrating reality. Mm-hmm. And the internet has made it even more accessible and more frustrating because can people go? People can go. Well, I don't really want to listen to my pastor on this. I'm going to listen to this guy that actually agrees with what I already think. Mm-hmm. And so it's been really frustrating. Because I will say something like social justice and people will import into the word social justice a definition of social justice that they heard from liberal media, conservative media, current writers, and they'll think, oh, because I said social justice, that's what I meant. Did you ask me what I meant? Did I define what I meant? Christians should say, If we hear a term we don't understand or we're in controversy about, we should say, hey, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by social justice? Hmm. And let the person define their terms. Rather than assuming we know what they mean by that term or we know what that term means. And here's the deal. If you know anything about history, if you know anything about interpretation, you, you know anything about linguistics, if you know anything about understanding topics and and arguments and You have to define terms mm-hmm. because people mean different things. They say the same words, but they mean different things. Yeah. Right. Um, and so we have to we have to be better at defining our terms. I need to be better at defining my terms, but also as listeners, we need to be def- better at asking people, "What do you mean by that?" Mm-hmm. When you say social justice, what do you mean by that? When you say anti-racism, what do you mean by that? And I'm going to be coming from my understanding of the scriptures, not my my reading of modern political theory or whatever. So when I when somebody says, "What do you mean by social justice?" I mean from a biblical perspective, every human being made in the image of God should be given their human rights and due. That every person has a has certain level of rights that should not be infringed upon, um, and I'm taking that from the Noahic covenant that says a person should have the freedom to to create the life that they want to create, but an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. In a sense, there should be a sense of justice there that every human being um, should be treated fairly. I don't mean what the modern equivalent of that is, is that you can somehow create your own sense of injustice or things that are contrary to natural law and say, well, I'm being, uh, you know, condemned or I'm being uh, marginalized because I am some asexual being that believes that I have some kind of alien sexuality that everybody should recognize and celebrate. I'd be like, uh, no. Sorry, but you have a mental disorder. You have what's you have sin in your heart and you're confused and we don't have to recognize that. But every human based upon no you know, the Mago Day have a certain sense of rights, inalienable constitution, inalienable rights, right? So what does the the balance look like? Because, you know, we want to have the identity as a learner, 
and hopefully, I think at least ideally, you would have somebody that's further along in their walk with Jesus that's kind of helping guide you and disciple you along. So when they say something, should the immediate response be, let me check the scriptures and see where, if this lines up? Like, what, what, what's the balance you think there? Like, I think that's a good question. I think the first question always should be, what do you mean by that? And that's one of the things that we talk about when we hear people tell their stories. Well, God loves me. Well, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this, this, is a, this happened. Well, what do you mean by that? One of the problems that we have is the only eyes we have to see through are our own. And so sometimes when somebody says something, we're interpreting it through our own lens instead of saying, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? And letting them clarify and maybe change what we thought they meant. Mm -hmm. So I think the first question should be, what do you mean by that? And then the second question should be, okay, what do the scriptures say about that? So immediately, like the, the, so the the anti-racism thing, when I hear, when I say anti-racism, I I mean that Christians are are meant and called to be more than not racist. Like that's you know, that's the bare minimum. Yeah. We're actually called to love our enemies. We're actually called to love those that are different from us. We're actually called to we've been given a ministry of reconciliation to reconcile with all those that have the dividing wall between us, right? Mm. So that's, when I say anti-racism, I mean, yeah, that's a positive thing. I'm not just not racist. I'm actually working for the equality of all people, no matter what race they are. Mm-hmm. But then there's a there's a definition of anti-racism that's being propagated today. That means the entire structure of Western civilization is racism at its core and that we're all racists, and the only way to get rid of racism is to destroy democracy. I outright reject that and condemn that, and I think that's an that's a fallacy, and that's crazy, and it's mm-hmm. just absolutely it invites chaos and rebellion, and all kind of horrible things into our society. Um, but you're not going to know that unless you ask me. Well, what do you mean by anti-racist? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, if you listen to Fox News, they're going to define anti-racism one way. And if you listen to me, I'm going to define it another way. And if you listen to CNN, they're going to define it another way. And so it's really important for us to say, hold on, let's define our terms, right? Before you leave a church, before you send me an email, before you freak out, what do you mean by that? Right? And, And I did a whole podcast on Black Lives Matter, and it was the same thing with Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. What do you mean by that? I told you what I meant by that. Everybody's made in the image of God. Imago Dei. <coughs> they matter, 100%. Boom. Well, the left's going to say Black Lives Matter means this. The right's going to say Black Lives Matter means this. So you got people arguing when they don't even know, they haven't even defined their terms. Yeah. Hmm. Right? So you, we have to do better at defining our terms. Yeah. That's what I mean by that. And then see where the scripture lines up with it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
because scripture is what's informing it. And that's what I'm doing. When I'm saying Black Lives Matter, I'm, I'm coming from a 100% scriptural foundation of black people, white people, made in the image of God, all have equal dignity, value, and worth. And I had a person say to me, all lives matter, all lives matter. And I'm like, who's arguing that all lives don't matter? You're, that's an ignorant point. That's like your wife looking at you and saying, do you love me, honey? And I say, I love everyone, honey. Jesus tells me to love everyone, even my enemies. So of course I love you. My wife, <laughs> my wife is a lovely woman, but that would not comfort her in any way. <laughs> that would really not answer her question in any way. She's wondering, do you, Justin Dean, love me, Amanda Dean? In a way that's special, in a way that's unique, right? Mm -hmm. That's what she's saying, in a sense. I don't know if I, maybe she's revealing in that moment. I don't feel loved by you, mm. and so I'm wanting affirmation that you love me. When an African American says, "Do Black Lives Matter?" they don't need an answer. Oh, human lives matter because we're all made. That's not what they're. They don't feel like they're loved. They don't feel like they're valued. And so what, what do we say? Absolutely black lives matter. That's what we say. Do unborn lives matter? Absolutely unborn lives matter. I don't need some general blanket terms, all lives matter. Anybody who's saying that is ignorant of the real issue. Mm -hmm. And we should define our terms and say, what's the real question behind this? This person doesn't feel loved, doesn't feel valued, doesn't feel equal. And so what does scripture say? Absolutely you are. So I can 100% unequivocally say black lives matter. And yet, whoa, I'm not saying what the Black Lives Matter organization is saying. Right? I'm not saying that. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's, I'm, I'm just, I disregard everything they say about sexuality and the nuclear family and all the craziness that they that they pr promulgate that's a different organization so i think we 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 should say scripture is primary and then when we don't understand something we should say what do you mean by that hmm. define your terms and i'll admit i need to get better at defining my terms um because sometimes honestly i haven't i don't know i'm reading the bible and i'm when so when i hear something i'm like that makes sense biblically I'm not going to the far left or the far right and saying, how are they twisting this mm -hmm. thing, mm. right? So, yeah. Any other thoughts on that, guys? All right. So, guys, we have just worked our way through the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, all about Scripture, what it is, what constitutes Scripture, um, we need the Holy Spirit to understand it. It's clear even for the uneducated. We all need to read it. There's some parts that are difficult, some parts that are easier to understand. The main purpose of salvation and life and doctrine is easy to understand, but there's some parts of it that are difficult to understand. It's divinely inspired and inerrant in the original autographs, the original language, the Hebrew scriptures, and the Greek New Testament. And so we need to be constantly... Um, searching and understanding to better understand the original languages 
And anytime we have a controversy, we need to go back, not just to tradition, not just to our own personal understanding, not just to our own, you know, illumination, but we need to go back to the actual text of Scripture and say, what does Scripture actually say about this issue? Mm. And so I hope over these last few weeks, you've just come to desire to study the Scriptures in a greater way. Um, and you become a better student of the scriptures. If you want to know good commentaries or a good helps, send me a message, and I would love to help you and, and uh, give you some resources. Justin Dean at sacredchurch.com. We love you guys. We hope this podcast is beneficial for being a theologian and understanding how to follow Jesus in the everyday rhythms of life. Give us a like, give us a comment, give us a share on Facebook or wherever you find yourself listening to this podcast. We love you guys, and until next time, God bless. Mm -hmm.